Well, we heard on Sunday a very clear message on what the mission is and what the message is according to Romans 10 from my friend Mark Lincoln. And he said this mission and this message is both necessary and certain. It's necessary and it's certain. And so it deserves our attention. And not just a week's worth of attention. So why do we have a missions emphasis week? Well, it is not because it is the one week of 52 that we pray about missions, that we hear updates on missions and missionaries, that we celebrate and talk about and give to missions. No, it is the one week of the year in which we intensify our celebration and our vision for mission, uh, a mission that we give to and pray for and talk about, hopefully, all year round. Missions Emphasis Week is something like a locker room talk in the midst of a game. It's our halftime. It's something like a, a sports banquet in the middle of a school year, which both celebrates some past highlights, but also hopefully reinvigorates for the second semester. And one of the most important things I think we can do as a church in any given Missions Emphasis Week is to talk about the motivation behind our missions endeavors. Why should we speak on behalf of Christ here in our own backyards? Why should we go out of our way to become friends with our neighbors and co-workers? Why should we try to serve people we get to know and show them love and simply be kind and godly in front of them? in view of gospel opportunities with those people. Why? Well, why should we also sacrifice our money, our possessions, our, our luxuries, our, our vacations, perhaps, in sending others to go away with the message to, to a land where it is not easily accessible? Why should some, to quote Martin Luther's hymn, why should some let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also? Why should some leave the comforts and familiarity of home and risk it all for the gospel? Well, those questions can be legitimately answered a number of different ways. We can talk about compassion for the lost. We can talk about the love of God. We could talk about obedience to God and his call. We, we could simply talk about eternity. But I believe uppermost in our multi-layered motivations for missions must be worship. Worship. You might think of worship as something for us, and perhaps it gets us a little bit excited so that we go out, and that's for them. But worship and mission are a lot more closely aligned than you might think. The opening lines of John Piper's instant classic book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I hope every member of Desert Springs Church reads that sometime soon, is is utterly quotable and quote worthy. 
I don't know of another book outside the Bible that begins so clearly, so powerfully, so succinctly, and, and so effectively, and even, at first, so radically. And so I quote it to you again. And if you have read or heard these lines before, I do not apologize for you hearing them again. It's that good. Piper says, missions... Remember, this is a missions book. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. He goes on, but worship is also the fuel of missions. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord, I will be glad and exult in thee, I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. Now, if that is radical to you, or when that was once radical to you when you first read it or heard it, it's only radical because we've forgotten how clear the Bible is on these very things. Piper didn't make this stuff up. And one psalm that makes those things very, very clear is Psalm 96. Would you turn there? Piper got the title of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, from Psalm 67, very similar to our psalm, Psalm 96, but we'll go with this one this evening, Psalm 96. Let me read all 13 verses for us. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved he will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 96 is about God's expansive praise. His expansive praise, his ever-expansive praise, or we could say his ever-expanding praise, or his ever-intensifying praise in this world. That's God's plan. That's his mission. And hence, that's our mission. And that's the motivation behind what we do. That's the answer to those questions I asked earlier about why. Why do this? Why do that? Because of what we've been invited into and because of what we're inviting others into. That's where our psalm begins with the first three verses, which we could call an invitation to expansive praise. An invitation. It's stronger than invitation. Maybe a better word would be a summons or a plea. Oh, sing to the Lord. You hear that exclamation at the beginning? Oh, sing to the Lord. That's a command. That's a passionate pleading. And all this is seen as well in the repetition throughout. Sing, 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 bless Tell, declare. Sixteen times in this psalm, in various ways, we're called to praise God or represent him verbally to the world. Sing to God, verse 1, and sing to him a new song. A new song. Now, plenty of psalms review history, what God has done. Many recorded songs in the Bible were not one-and-done sort of songs or one-hit wonders. They were to be used over and over and over again, and they were often for millennia. As a church, we today love to sing some of those old songs. I, I quoted earlier from Martin Luther. I'm sure we'll sing Isaac Newton or Watts at some point this evening or if not by Sunday. We love the old theological rich stuff that has heritage to it and is rich in truth. But, but maybe a dozen times in the Bible, we're encouraged to sing a new song. And that's a song about something new, which God has apparently just done or perhaps is about to do. A new song about something new. There's a new or fresh reason to praise him and only a new song will do. It's in 1 Chronicles 16 that we find a song, which part of it is our psalm, Psalm 96. You can go find the, the majority of Psalm 96 wedged between other lyrical portions of 1 Chronicles 16. And there, in narrative context, we see it's David's song, a song he wrote and sung celebrating the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant into the tent in Jerusalem. 
It was a new moment. It was a big deal. Remember, this is when David danced before the ark as it traveled up the mount to Jerusalem. This would what would one be one day be the temple mount. Remember, this is the context in which David is going to say to the Lord, how about I build you a house now for your presence? And God says, not just yet, a generation later, first I'm going to build you a house. And God spells out the Davidic covenant. Right before that, right after the ark arrives, David writes a new song. A few hundred years later, during the Babylonian captivity, God's people had been given a a timeout, out of the land, out of the blessing. They needed discipline, and God put them there for 70 years. But he was about to act. He was about to bring them back. He was about to remove them from the timeout and give them a lollipop of sorts. And so Isaiah, the prophet, spoke on behalf of God in chapter 42 of his prophecy, Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So, sing to the Lord a new song. God's on the move and about to do something new. Or how about in Revelation, when John sees that heavenly throng saying and singing. He says, Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. There was no previous song in Scripture that spelled out all that. Something new had happened in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. A new thing, a new song. Well, Psalm 96 anticipates all of that. We don't know exactly when it was written, but it's obviously written in Old Testament times. And when we read Psalm 96 now, we read it with the later developments of God's plan in mind as accomplished. So not just the end of Babylonian captivity, and not even just the arrival of the Messiah, but his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, his reigning on high, and his promise to come again. Sing to the Lord a new song. He has done great things. Sing to him. Who? Who should sing to him? Well, notice, all the earth, verse 1. What should they sing? Well, bless his name. Tell of his salvation, verse 2. And when should they do it? From day to day. Do you feel the expansiveness of this? The swelling? It's a crescendo that keeps growing and spreading and swelling and getting louder and getting deeper. So here we have everyone, everywhere, all the time, called on, to praise and represent God. And if you want to play the skeptic, you might say, wait, are you saying everyone praises God? No, 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 no. But they should. They should. And they're invited. And they've been summoned. And they're here pleaded with. Is God's praise everywhere? Oh, no, no, it's not. It's not yet. 
but it's spreading. It's spreading right now. People are getting saved somewhere on this planet right now, I suspect. It just keeps spreading. It didn't used to be here on this land, and it is here now. That's where it's going. And so this is real personal, and yet it's so global. There's this invitation or summons of Psalm 96 that's something we personally take up as our own. That's verse 1. And there's this invitation that we keep hearing and heeding. That's really verse 2 from day to day. Even Christians need to be reminded we praise him day to day, every day, and especially on Sundays. And there's this invitation as well for us to take it in, take it with us, keep at it, and take it out. Take it to the nations. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And then we're told why. So now secondly, we see an explanation for expansive praise. There's an explanation in verses 4 through 6. Or, or the basis for what came before. In, in some ways, the basis has already been inferred in verses 1 through 3. We could say, well, yeah, you should sing to the Lord because he's the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. That's who it is. Give him praise. But we could say verses 1 through 3 teach us we should give him praise because it's commanded. Sing, declare, tell. We, we could say, well, because he's saved verse 2, or because he's done marvelous works, verse 3. But, but you see, even just literarily, something changes in verse 4 and 5 with that word in English, for, F-O-R. For, reason, here's why. And then it's explicitly spelled out the reasons for this invitation and this summons and the pleading that came before. He's great. Great is the Lord, verse 4. And hence, he is to be praised greatly. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His praise is to represent something of his greatness. Ideally, it would be consummate or, or, or equal praise for his greatness. Great God, great praise. We'll never get there, but we're looking for something closer to what closer to that than what we've had and what we've known and what others have experienced or what they do. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. That's why we should praise him and sing about him and declare his glory. He's not like other gods. He is singularly supreme. He's alone. There's no other god. Verse 5, all the gods of the peoples are, literally in the Hebrew, it's, they, they are nothingness. They're, they're nothingness. But God, he's the creator, the creator of it all. He made the heavens, not our globe, but the universe and the Milky Way and, and everything beyond. And he's splendid. Verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You see, the reason for 
God's ever-expansive praise and for us to respond appropriately to the invitation to give him praise and to get him praise, well, the reasons are many. And they are mighty. They are not insignificant. They are not small. They are not nearly as powerful as the ones driven by compassion, the ones driven by human suffering, the the ones that we muster up on our own to try to feel compelled or to show love. Oh, Oh, that's real, that's true, that's biblical, that's good. But it's not ultimate because man is an ultimate. God is ultimate. And so the reasons for his praise and the spread of his praise The reasons are doctrinal. They are are definitive. And they are really descriptive. They're not vague. Like he doesn't say here, he's a really nice God. He's done some really cool things. It gets specific. And that's good. That is what we need. I come back to John Piper again. Elsewhere, he addressed pastors on their role in helping their churches be mission-focused. And he said, no church will be able to rise to the magnificence of the missionary cause of Christ if they don't feel the magnificence of Christ themselves. There will be no big world vision without a big God. There will be no passion to draw others, near or far, into the joy of our worship where there is no passionate joy in worship. He addresses pastors directly when he says, the most important thing I think pastors can do to arouse and sustain a passion for world evangelization is to week in and week out help their people see the crags and peaks and icy cliffs and snow-capped heights of God's majestic character. How would the people ever come to know and feel the crags and peaks and snow-capped heights of God's glory if our preaching and worship services are more like picnics in the valley than thunder on the ice face of Mount Everest? I think what he's saying is to make sure missions endures. We may need to at times talk less about missions and more about God. He's the motivation. Now thirdly, there's an elaboration on expansive praise. An elaboration in verses 7 to 10. It seems like the psalmist leads us right back to where he started with this third section, but now with even greater height and and greater depth and more specificity. We have a new string of verbs or commands in verse 7 and following. A scribe is there three times. What's that? Well, it means to attribute. Attribute to God. Describe God and describe God to God. Describe God for others. It's descriptive. Ascribe glory and strength to him because he has glory and strength. 
Bring an offering, another verb command here in verse 8. Come into his courts. Worship, verse 9. Tremble, verse 10. Say, say. Now these are just all rough synonyms, aren't they? Singing, blessing, telling, declaring, praising, ascribing, worshiping, saying. This is the what, we could say, of Psalm 96. It's the what, what we're to do. Who? Who? Well, we could say the reader is supposed to do these things. And the reader, we would expect to be among God's people. Who should do this? Of course, God's people should do this. But also, verse 7, the families of the peoples. The families of the people groups. Peoples is a a weird thing for us if we're not used to it, because people is already plural, right? How do you get peoples? Well, these are people groups. These are cultures or known tongues. Or in case we are thinking too compartmentalized with peoples or people groups, verse 9 just tells us all the earth. So the who of this passage is God's people and the families, the peoples, and the whole earth. And then there's also this another level with those who have taken up this summons, taken up this invitation in faith through grace to God's praise. For them, they are also to invite others in. Christians are the invited and the inviters on God's behalf. So verse 10, say among the nations the Lord reigns. Or back in verse 3, declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous work among all the peoples. Now we've seen this in pockets of the Old Testament. Moses' father-in-law in the book of Exodus, you may remember, comes to confess the one true God, even though he's not a Jew. The queen of Sheba comes to Solomon to get wisdom from him. You know the story of Rahab showing her faith in Yahweh God when she protected the Jewish spies from her own people. Or one of the best examples is Daniel's witness in Babylon to Babylonian and Chaldean kings on behalf of God. But we see that, that pocket in the Old Testament, just opened up and torn open in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. From his interaction with Samaritans, those half-breeds as they were known, to his ministry among the Gentiles in the Gerizines, to his explicit statements like in John 12, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself, all kinds of men. To his words of the Great Commission given in Matthew, Luke, and John, his final words among his disciples to the actual spread of his gospel in the record of the book of Acts. 
as the gospel moves literally from Jerusalem to Judea, to the Samaritans, and to the ends of the earth. And we saw on Sunday, Paul was writing to the Romans saying, get me just a little further west, I gotta get to Spain. Well, Paul later explains these themes and desires in Romans 15. Listen to this. In Romans 15, he says, Christ came in order that the Gentiles, the nations, literally, might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, and he gives an Old Testament quote, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, or nations, and sing to your name. And again it is said, another Old Testament quote, rejoice, O Gentiles, or nations, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles or nations. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, a fourth Old Testament quote. Now from Isaiah, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles or the nations. In him, the Gentile nations will hope. Four Old Testament quotes stacked up one after another in order to explain the saving global purposes of Christ. The foreshadows and the promises of passages like those Paul quotes in Romans 15 and like the one we're looking at tonight in Psalm 96 are all wrapped up in Jesus. So how much better, how much clearer, how much louder... How much more often shall we sing and represent and do Psalm 96? We have more reason to sing. We have more reason to declare his glory among the nations. We have more reasons or explanations to give them about what he's done and who he is. We can ascribe to him more because he's shown more and he's done more. We can say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He reigns on high and his name is Jesus. So what we're dealing with in a passage like Psalm 96 is actually the very heartbeat of the Bible. It may not record for us Jesus' name or his death or resurrection, but it is certainly a window into God's heart, a window into God's plan, and it should, it should paint the picture for us of the heart he wants for us. More than that, we actually have a description of conversion in Psalm 96. Again, not without the gospel content of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. But here we have the invitation and presumably the response. And we know that the gospel doesn't just offer forgiveness, but restoration. It doesn't just call us to, well, try harder, but calls us to worship. Didn't Jesus say in John 4, the Father is seeking worshipers? Not just believers, not just forgiven people, not just heaven bound. He is seeking worshipers. Here in Psalm 96, we have a description of discipleship and worship. 
This is what we say to one another. This is what we do together. This is who we are. This is what it's all about. That's, this is what this evening's about. This is what Sunday morning's about. This is what heaven will be. Here we have a, a picture of what's to come, and we'll see that in our next point. Here we have an example of evangelism. Here's what you do. You, you hold out God in all of his goodness and glory to those who haven't heard and those who don't yet understand and they don't yet get it. Give them the reasons. Explain it. Unfold God. Ascribe him to them for their joy, for God's glory. This is missions. There are places where he's not known. There are nations where he is not trusted or believed on or worshipped and he is to be worshipped everywhere by everyone all the time so Piper is right that the that worship is the goal of missions we want other people to worship God through Jesus Christ and it is the fuel for missions if we're motivated by something less we we might give up. But this is ultimate. God's worship is ultimate. And by the way, that means then that there is some big disconnect if our thinking, either individually or as a church, is along the lines of wanting to be a worshiping church, but who cares about the mission? Or to be a worshiping church, but not a theological church. Not a disciple-making church. Let's not get doctrinal. Or to be a church that's on mission, but yawns at corporate worship. What's the point? There are people out there who are lost. Why meet with the church? Go feed them. Well, maybe, maybe not Sunday morning. Or any other combination of those things with a missing ingredient. They all go together. They all represent the same thing. You could even just take one of the power-packed lines in Psalm 96 that we often like to say as a church. In verse 4, God is great and greatly to be praised. Meditate on that. I'd suggest that's a kind of gospel track. God is great and greatly to be praised. And there are people who don't know that. There are people who don't get that. And they need to be told that and explained that. And it, it, they need it commended to them. They need to be told why he's great and why he's greatly to be praised. That little phrase is like a discipleship manual. God is great and greatly to be praised. So friend, put down that habit of sin. Give up that thing. He's greatly to be praised. He's not worth that. The, the gods of this world are nothingness. It's a worship guide for us. What should we have on our minds on Sunday morning when we enter in? Well, how about this? This would be safe. God is great, and he is greatly to be praised. And this should, this should be our mission's motto. He's great, and he's greatly to be praised. So give, pray, send, consider going. Also because of this, fourthly and lastly, there's a culmination of expansive praise in our psalm. A culmination. Let me just read the ending to you again. 
Let the heavens be glad. Verse 11. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Do you feel it spreading and spreading and spreading? First among people, but now even creation itself. And do you hear it getting loftier and loftier and loftier? It's getting punchier. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar all that fills it. These things aren't supposed to praise God. Fields exalting, they don't have emotions, do they? Well, no. But this kind of thing happens elsewhere in Scripture. Isaiah 44, Isaiah 55, they talk about trees clapping their hands because God's doing something awesome. Romans 8 gives us the inverse that currently creation is groaning because it's under a curse. And it's longing for the day of its final adoption when Christ comes back. So here is pictured for us, not just heaven in some weird, celestial, ethereal atmosphere of clouds and angels, wings and harps, but a whole new heaven and earth, a whole new creation, heaven and earth, one together. Seas roaring in praise to God. Fields somehow giggling in praise to God. Trees singing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. And that may be good news for you or bad news. He's coming again. In that day, trees which haven't sinned will celebrate. Fields which have done no wrong, well, they will exult. But sinners like us, there are two kinds. There are those who have taken the invitation through Christ and gone in. And for them, words like judgment or Jesus as the judge, which is how our psalm ends, isn't bad news. For them, judgment means Jesus setting things aright. And that's wonderful news. That's justice. That's peace. That's the best worship we've ever known. That's communion with him. That's no longer walking through this with the eyes of faith, but now seeing him face to face. The day that the judge shows up is the day that my salvation is complete. It's the day that I will sin no more. It's the day that I will hurt no more. It's the day that I'm done crying. I will leap. And people who have never walked before will also leap on that day. And those who have strutted in this life before this awesome God they will crumble before him on that horrible day when he comes to judge the earth. Because he will judge the world in righteousness, perfect righteousness. He will judge the peoples in his faithfulness. I wonder how you hear that. Again, if you're a believer, you should hear that with all good news. You should receive it with a smile on your face as you wait the day. And if you haven't yet come in, 
and taken him up on this invitation. Well, hear the warning and come in while you still can.